0: Thank you Miss Wendy. I also want to thank the the children for singing for us this morning. It's wonderful to hear God's praises coming from you guys. Thank you all for sharing with us. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah. That's after Haggai and before Malachi. As you, as you turn there, I want to give you some, just some introductory things on the book of, of Zechariah. The word Zechariah, the name, means Yahweh remembers. And as you've seen with some of the other minor prophets, the name gives us a lot of insight into what the book is going to be about. Uh, the book of Zechariah is one of the longest in the minor prophets. Along with Hosea, it's the only minor prophet that's up to 14 chapters. And it's also a very difficult genre. Um, the genre of Zechariah is apocalyptic. Much of it is apocalyptic. This makes it much like the book of Revelation. In fact, the book of Revelation, if it, the book that it takes from the most throughout the rest of Scripture, is the book of Zechariah. Uh, there are 71 quotations from Zechariah in the New Testament. And many of these are also in Revelation, as we said. And 27 of these are found in the Gospels. And these are associated with the last week of Jesus' life, which we'll consider more of here in the sermon. But I say all this... To warn you, in a sense, Zechariah is difficult. (laughs) And this is not an excuse. That Zechariah is just a very unique book. There are many images, visions that Zechariah is receiving, and many things that we have to go back and we have to get context on, and we have to understand what might this mean to these people. And so I want to warn you from the beginning, this morning for Zechariah, there is more teaching required. There's more context for us to understand Also, Zechariah, unlike some of the other minor prophets, while many of them will have specific instructions and ethical guidelines and saying, this is what you need to do, Zechariah only has a few of these. Much of these 14 chapters consist of these visions that Zechariah is receiving. And so, because of this, the application this morning is going to be more about trusting and meditating on God's promises in Christ. This is what Zechariah is about. God is a God who makes promises and who keeps them. Transformation doesn't come like this. It comes by trusting in a God who keeps his promises. And so, as you sit there listening this morning, I pray that this isn't the only time that you hear God's word during the week. If you expect to be transformed because I'm a good preacher, I will fail you. I assure you, it won't happen. Transformation comes from trusting and meditating on God's promises, and I hope that you'll see them this morning in the book of Zechariah. It comes from reading God's word individually and within community and then trying to live it daily. And so as you hear the book of Zechariah, it's hearing the promises of God and it's responding by meditating on them constantly. This is the application this morning. Well, the first step to understanding the context of Zechariah is understanding the expectation of God's people in this day. As we said last week, Haggai, the book we studied last week, and Zechariah, they are contemporaries. And so they're preaching right about the same time, 520 B.C. This is a post-exilic period. The people have returned from Babylon. They've been able to return back to their land. Now, if you were a part of an equipping class uh, about a year ago called God's Big Picture, this is an equipping class that Landon did with, with several of you, you might remember a significant phrase. And that phrase is, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Let me, let me say that again for you. This is an important phrase. God's people, repeat that, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Okay, thank you. That's good. This is the long-time expectation of God's people. This is their hope from the beginning to Abraham. This, they would have a land. They would have a place in which they would dwell and that they would dwell in peace, in which they would be a blessing to the nations around them, but that God would protect them, that they would be his people. This was the long-time covenant promise. This is what they longed for and hoped for. We know that they were exiled because of their disobedience because they rebelled against God. And so that's why they had to go they went to Babylon. Now, as they return, as they return to the land, the promised land, remember. What do you think they were expecting? They were expecting that God was fulfilling the promises of old. God is allowing his people to return to their land. And this is going to be the time when all the peoples around them would be conquered. They would dwell in peace. They would be God's people. And they would live under his blessings. This was the expectation. And so when God's people get to Jerusalem and it lies in ruins. The work is difficult. The lands around them, as we will see in one Zechariah's first vision, the lands around them are dwelling in peace. This means that they're, they're still vulnerable to their enemies. What does this mean? Is God keeping His promises? God, are you going to allow us to dwell in peace, or are you going to allow these nations to again come in and to defeat us? These are the questions God's people are asking. And it's for this reason that as we walk through the book of Zechariah, as I've read this this week, the one question that I see being addressed throughout the entire book is this one question. How does God respond to evil? How does God respond to evil? Now this may not seem significant to you, but when you read the paper day after day and you see... Multiple atrocities committed against families, even within our, our own city. But especially in our nation, you see children who are being sexually abused. It's, it's rampant. And if these things happen to you, you would be asking this question. God, how are you going to respond to this evil that I'm being affected by, that's so close to me? God, am I going to open the paper one day and there be peace ever Is good going to prevail or is evil going to continue in our world? This is all about worldview. This is what God's word is to do. It's supposed to transform us to where when we look at the paper, we know there's a day. There's a day that's coming when this will no longer happen. Evil will not prevail, but good will prevail. Peace will come. There will be a day of complete peace. This is the question that we're asking. How is God going to respond? To evil. And so as we look at this, open your notes, which are in your bulletin there. This outline will be necessary for you as we look at the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah is split up into two main parts. Part 1, part 2. The part 1 consists of chapters 1 through 8. Chapters 1 through 8. And then part 2 consists of chapters 9 through 14. These chapters are very clearly divided. But even within part one, we're going to see uh, divisions. These visions that Zechariah is going to receive are from chapters one through, one through six... And then in chapters 7 through 8, we'll see a couple, a couple sermons from Zechariah. And so let's begin. We're going to only look at a couple, a few of these visions that Zechariah sees for, for time's sake. And so the first one that we see from, let's, we'll look at the introduction. And we'll look at the first vision, excuse me. So I'm going to read, and I hope you'll follow with me in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. This is how God responds to evil. The first thing God does is he offers repentance. He offers repentance. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1. In the eighth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord. Of hosts, Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers?' So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. The first thing God does with evil is he offers repentance and here's what you need to we need to understand is the evil is not only out there, but it is also in here within every one of us. You see, God's people were returning from the promised land, and they thought, well, God's just renewing his promises to us. But they needed to realize that the first step they needed to do is they needed to repent. They needed a new start. They themselves were not pure. They had done nothing. God was giving them an opportunity to return to the land and to change their ways, to not be like their fathers who did wickedly. And so the first thing God does in response to evil is he provides an opportunity for us to repent, for us to change our ways. We need to deal with this personally. Again, the evil's not just out there, away from us, but it's also within us. And so the first thing we need to do is stop looking out, start looking in and say, God, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? We don't need to look judgmentally, judgmentally out there because we could be just like them. The only difference is that we've received grace if we've repented to the Lord. And so the question that you need to ask yourself immediately, are you, have you repented? Are you continually repenting? Or are you constantly looking out and saying, those people need to repent. Those people, they're so wicked. We are wicked ourselves. You would be just like them were it not for the grace of Christ. This is why Paul constantly says, remember who you were. Remember. And this will cause you to look out and to be gracious, to be kind and say, God forgave me. He can also forgive you. He will also forgive you. So the first thing God does in response to evil is he offers repentance. He offers a new start. Now let's look at this, this first vision of Zechariah. This is in ch- uh, chapter 1, verses 7 through 17. Please follow along with me. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red sorrel and white horses, Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, and he said, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered, and the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest." All the earth remains at rest. Remember this. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Now, this might sound very odd, it does sound very odd, that God sends this patrol throughout the whole earth, and we could get very caught up into the color of the horses. This is what we often do with apocalyptic literature. What's the significance of these colors, of the brown, the red? and that, That's not the point. The only thing that we can understand is what he's told us. Zechariah asked what it means, and the angel doesn't respond with what the colors of the horses are signifying. He re- responded that they're sent to patrol the earth. And this is the message that they bring back. The whole earth is at rest. And if you notice in these verses, after it says the earth remains at rest, the angel of the Lord in verse 12 says, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? Notice the negative response to this. They're not pleased with the whole earth being at rest. What does this mean? Again, as we said earlier, When they returned to the land, they thought that this was God fulfilling the promises of old. That they would no longer be threatened with nations around them. You see, when God's people are surrounded by these other nations, there's great potential these nations will come in and conquer them. They're not dwelling in peace And so, God's people are angry. They're wondering, God, are you going to take care of this evil around us? When it says the whole earth is at rest, it means that God is not judging the wickedness of the nations right now. That's the question God's people are asking. That's what's here in this vision. And so he asks, God, what are you going to do? And the response of this is, the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. And he says in verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. And so God is reminding them, he's encouraging them, I'm going to fulfill my promise. You will build this temple here, even the temple that they were presently working on. But as we've talked about in the minor prophets, every prophecy had an implication for them, and for further down the road, an eschatological, an end-time hope that God would establish peace in the land forever. So this is the first vision, and this is what introduces us to the visions that are coming, that the people are wondering, God, are you going to preserve us? Are you going to take care of us? And God's promise comes, and he says, yes, I'm going to take care of you. The next vision we're going to look at is the vision four, and this vision is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. So if you'll turn there with me. And there's a, a, a lot of reading here, so help just follow along with me. <laughs> Hope to make sense of this. It says in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, It says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. Remember, there was a man last week named Zerubbabel, and there was a man named Joshua. Zerubbabel was the governor of the people now, and Joshua is the high priest. So this is who he's speaking about. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Verse 6, And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge... Then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this people in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Now, doesn't, isn't that just clear as mud? In chapter 3, we see Zerubbabel, we see Joshua, and we see Zechariah seeing Joshua. And when he sees him, Joshua has these dirty robes. Now remember that the high priest was the one to go into the temple on behalf of all the people and make sacrifices. So as the high priest wears these dirty robes, it means that he is wearing the sin of all the people. This is signifying the sin of all the people. And so when it says... Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. God is purifying his people, beginning with this high priest, through the mediator, the high priest. Now, this is very significant as we get down into verses 6 through 10. This high priest, Joshua, bore the sin of the people, but let's look at the promise that's coming. It says, the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, if you will walk in my ways, keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. They are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. They are prophesying, they are giving the promise that this high priest will also be one of of royalty. He will sit on a throne. It says that you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. Now know this throughout the history of Israel. It has been a king and it has been a high priest. They have been a separate persons. And the king has ruled, he has been the one of royalty and of royalty, and then the high priest has ruled the temple. But what is being prophesied here is that there's one who's going to come who will be the high priest, but who will also be the king. And we know this because it says, "Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, the branch. Who's this person that looks like a branch? Well, we see this in other prophets. In Jeremiah, for instance, and I have this in your notes if you're looking at those. Jer- Jeremiah 23, 5-6 and 33:15 through 16 These are prophecies that have been in the works. They've been made. It says, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Is David a king or is he a priest? He is a king. Right, And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The prophecy that's being pointed to, that's being made, is one day, unlike this day in which Zerubbabel is a governor, he is the king, the leader, and Joshua is the high priest, that one day these positions will be made into one. That there will be one person called the branch. It will shoot from David. And this person will serve the role as high priest and as king. And as king. Let's move on to to vision 5, chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. And here we see Zerubbabel. Hang with me, hang with me. There is an end. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold... A lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. This is very similar in imagery to what's happening in the book of Revelation. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel is the one who is responsible for making sure that this temple is built. And so the encouragement comes from the Lord. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit that this is going to happen. Who are you, O great mountain? Verse 7. Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amidst shouts of grace, grace to it. The prediction is that when this temple is built, the people will not say that they've done it by their own hands, but they're going to say grace to the temple, grace to it, because it's a work of grace. The Lord has allowed it to be built. It was God's work, not simply theirs. Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His sands shall also complete it. This is the temple. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. The prophet is assuring them, this temple will be built. These these seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. It is these two anointed ones are the servants of the Lord in this period. This is Joshua and Zerubbabel. These are very key figures here. And they are a foreshadowing of one figure who is to come. And so these are Joshua and Zerubbabel, whom God has anointed for this time period to see this temple built. And the key point, the central verse in this vision is, it is not by might, nor is it by power, but it is by the Spirit of the Lord. And I think that we can all relate to this. We all do need to relate to this, that it's never by our might, even though God has called us to work with our hands and to do things, it's never by our might or by our power, but it's by His Spirit that we have life, that we have anything. He's the one who causes your heart to beat. And so we never need to be trusting in ourselves. And Zerubbabel was at a point where it was going to be difficult to see this temple built. It was going to require work. It was going to be extremely hard. He was also the one in charge of encouraging the people and making sure that they kept their spirits up and stayed at the task. And so the Lord comes to encourage him. Stick with it. It's by my spirit. And I hope you'll be encouraged by this as well. Whatever's going on in your life, it's not by your own strength that you're meant to do anything. It is by God's spirit. This is where you should be trusting. This is where you should be secure. Not in yourself, but in him, in his spirit. Let's turn to the last vision. And we're nearing the second half of uh, the Zechariah, which is my favorite part. Vision 8, verse, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. This is, the, this is the entire vision, verses 1 through 15. Because of time, we're going to stick to verses 9 through 15. And this is where the message about Joshua and Zerubbabel reached their, their peak. Beginning in verse 9 of chapter 6. And the word of the Lord came to me, this is Zechariah, take from the exiles Hilda Tobajah, and Zediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadok, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts Behold, the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Pay close attention to what's happening here. The high priest is being crowned. The high priest would not normally wear a crown of royalty and of rulership, of kingship. But the high priest is being crowned, and it's to signify the branch who's to come who will build a temple. It is he, beginning in verse 13, It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and, royal and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Tobajah, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen the son of Zephaniah. And verse 15, those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. The point of this vision is that Joshua and Zerubbabel are this foreshadowing of one figure, a kingly priest and priestly in one. Now, some. Further division of, and patterns of the vision that will help you. I hope this has helped you in your personal Bible study of Zechariah, which you probably won't do for a long time after this. Chapter one, chapter 1, verse 7 through chapter 3, verse 10 is one section of these visions. If you notice, when we started reading chapter 4, verse 1, it said that an angel came and awoke uh, Zechariah out of his sleep. This means that the vision had stopped for a period. And so the second segment is chapter 4, 1 through six fifteen. Now, this helps us form some parallels, topics that they're paying close attention to. Here's the main topics that happen in these visions that we've just looked at, plus the ones that we didn't talk about specifically. First, encouragement to temple builders. Second, the anticipation of this figure called the branch. Third, cleansing from sin. God's people will be purified. This is what God does with evil. He cleanses from sin. And then, Gentile inclusion among God's people. This is what even chapter 6, 15 is referencing. People shall come from a long way off to help build the temple of the Lord. It will not just be these ethnic Israelites. Others will come. And so these are the main points of these visions. The next point as we look on to chapter 7 and 8 to the next segments of the book of Zechariah are that God calls for for heartfelt obedience. As I told you before, there are not many directives, commands from Zechariah where he tells us this is what you are to do. There's nothing, ethical commands. There's not a lot of that. But what does occur happens here in chapter 7 through 8. And what God is calling for is heartfelt obedience. Let, let's look at the first few verses. The first thing that happens in chapter 7 is a question is presented. Beginning in verses, verse 1 of chapter 7, we're going to walk through verse 3. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, with this, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord. And here is their question. They said to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? There was a law in Israel where they, would, where they would fast for these certain months. And so as they're getting back into the land and they're building the temple and they're trying to make sure that they have the law correct and they're following it well, they send these messengers and they say, are we to fast for these months? And here is the response. Beginning in verse 4. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priest, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh month for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And here's the instruction. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. This command will be given later again in in chapter 8, in the next sermon Zechariah gives. But the main thrust of this is that they're asking, do we need to fast? And Zechariah says, are you fasting for God or are you fasting for yourselves? The command of the Lord is this, render true judgments. Be honest in your heart. Show kindness and mercy to, towards one another. Do not oppress others. Make sure there are no oppressed groups within your midst or even outside of here. Take up for those who are oppressed and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. These are the commands of the Lord. This is what the Lord desires of us. It is so difficult sometimes for us. God, what do you want us to do? What do you want me to do right now? And The life with God can be so simple. Obey God, walk with him, trust in his son, love him with your whole heart. It's not just ritual acts of spirituality. It doesn't take complicated acts of spirituality. It's obey God, love him with your whole heart and all that you're doing. And so the question I want to ask here is, do your religious exercises flow from a heart that's devoted to God? Or are you just keeping up the show? Is your heart being changed? Is there transformation occurring in you? Then you're just doing it for yourself, if not. This is the message Zechariah was giving from the people. Let every bit of fasting that you do be a, a flow from your devotion to the Lord and your desire to know Him more, your longing for Him. But you shouldn't come and ask the preacher or someone else, Do you, do you think I need to be fasting? Well, that, is it for you or is it for, for the Lord? The answer is simple. It's simple. Let your walk with the Lord flow from the heart and your desire to know Him. This is the ethical guidelines for God's people. As this section concludes, again, Zechariah's two main divisions, chapters 1 through 8 and then chapters 9 through 14, verses 20 through 23 of chapter 8, this is the closing segment. Closing segment. Again, one of the main emphases of all of chapters 1 through 8 of these visions that Zechariah is receiving is the Gentile inclusion into God's people. And this answers the question of what does God do with evil? He opens wide the gates for people to know him, for people to repent and come into his people, to become his children. Beginning in verse 20, Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord, and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall hold the robe of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. This is God opening the floodgates and saying, let them come in, let them come to me. Look, even these people are doing evangelism. They're going to their neighbors and they're saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. And he says, I myself am going, won't you come with me? This is a picture of the evangelism that we should be doing. The Lord has opened it up through Christ that all may receive grace and mercy, that all may be forgiven. And so you should be going to people, you should be interacting with people so that you may say, will will you come with me? Will you hear the word of the Lord? It's just inviting people to church, speaking to them the message of the gospel and the necessity of forgiveness to know God, to be in relationship with Him. So this is the conclusion of these visions that God draws many to himself. What does God do with evil? He offers repentance and he draws many to himself. If it wasn't for this, we wouldn't be here. We would not be here. We are not ethnic Jews. We don't know that side of God. We did not have those covenant promises. But through Christ, we have become children of Abraham and we have been drawn in. This is what God does with evil. Part two. Part 2, chapters 9 through 14, this is also split up into two segments. And the sections are divided by this one phrase. This is how we know. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says, the burden of the word of the Lord. This is how it begins. And then also in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, the burden of the word of the Lord. This also is to answer the question, what does God do do with evil? How does he respond? The first thing God does is he intervenes through his servant. And his shepherd is rejected. As you walk through these chapters, if you walk through these on your own, you'll notice that this servant, there's one figure that's talked about here, and different names are used. And these are servant, this is shepherd, this is Lord. There are different names that are used, but know that they're talking about the same figure. The first thing that happens is that the king arrives. Chapter 9, verse 9. This verse should sound familiar to you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Unlike other kings in this day who would come in mounted on these war horses that looked strong and powerful, this king comes humbly. He's mounted on a donkey. Yet he comes and everyone is to rejoice. And remember, the book of Zechariah, though these parts are divided, it's one whole. And so when we say this king is coming, we should remember that there was a king crowned in these former verses, in these earlier chapters. Remember, Joshua the high priest was crowned. He was to be the royalty. And so as we look at this king, it should remind us that this king who God sends is one who is to be high priest and one who is also to rule the people. And so this king comes ruling and he comes riding on a donkey. And this is straight from Matthew chapter 21, verse 5. When Jesus enters Jerusalem, The last week of his life, he enters on a donkey. And Matthew sees this and he says, this is a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. This is the one. This is the king who God said was coming hundreds of years ago. So first the king arrives. Next, this good shepherd is rejected. Chapter 11, verses 4 through 13. Verses 4-13 through can be very difficult, very confusing. What's happened here is God has told Zechariah to act like a shepherd and to play the role of a shepherd. Now this shepherd, he could have been ruling in the city in any way. Zechariah could have received some political office there in Jerusalem. But what God is doing is telling him to act out what's to come. This is what he's instructed to do, beginning in verse 4. Thus says the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. What's happened is in Jerusalem, again, there have been groups who have begun to be oppressed within Jerusalem. And so he says, shepherd these people who are doomed to slaughter, who are doomed to be oppressed. Verse 6 God says, I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall in the hand of his neighbor, and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. Verse 7, so I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant I had made with all the peoples. Verse 11, so it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. This is where it gets interesting. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. What's interesting here is that the people have asked for a ruler who would be a good ruler. And this is what the word shepherd means, a a leader. They've asked for one who would be a good leader. Zechariah plays this role of being a shepherd. What's interesting is while he is a good shepherd, the people don't like him. And this is why he becomes weary with them. They don't want to support him. But this part where it says... Give me my wages. And then he's weighed out his wages, 30 pieces of silver. And then he's told to throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. 30 pieces of silver is what Judas sold Jesus for. And the potter is sitting in the temple. And so, as Zechariah is paid, weighed out this 30 pieces of silver. It's exactly what Jesus is sold for. Now, he goes by and the Lord says, throw it into the potter. And Judas if you remember, wanted to go back on his decision. And when he wasn't able to, he threw the money into the temple. And so, the good shepherd is rejected. This is quoted in Matthew chapter 26, 14 through 16, and 27, 3 through 5. Matthew saw this as a fulfillment. The people, like these, had asked for a good shepherd. They said, God, will you send us a a redeemer, a savior? But one comes, one who will rule them perfectly, and they don't like him. They hate him, in fact, and they're willing to kill him. Isn't it interesting that people would ask for a good leader, but when a perfect one comes, they reject him? We might need to ask ourselves that same question. If a perfect king showed up here, would we accept him? Would we deal well with him, kindly? Would we be glad if he called for our perfect obedience? This is what Jesus does. He calls for our perfect obedience. He calls for to be our Lord. But here he is rejected. The next thing that God does, he defeats evil. Chapter 12, verse 1 through 14, 21. This is the large section. But we'll look at these in in small parts and we're almost finished. The first thing is there's mourning for the pierced one. Chapter uh, 12, verse 10. We're almost finished. We're almost finished. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. God grants that those this from this house of David would look on Jesus as he's pierced and that they would mourn. This is a this is quoted in John chapter 19, verses 34 through 37, where the soldier pierces Jesus' side and they look on this one whom they have pierced. This is the real question for us. How do we look on Jesus? Are we able to look on To him with gladness, or this sense of sadness, rejoicing at the same time because he is our Savior. Or do we look on him with spite? Has God granted you that mercy so that you can look on the Savior and love him? The next thing that happens is God defeats evil. He he conquers it through the redemption of people. Chapter 13, verse 1. This day that this one has been pierced, it says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Excuse me. If you remember earlier in the visions, it says that this prophet, it says that the, man, the high priest Joshua, it says in one day, in that vision, it said in one day the Lord would cleanse the people from all their iniquity. We need to put these things together because it's in this one being pierced that the people are cleansed from all their iniquity. This is how God defeats evil, through this suffering, through the branch, the one who comes and the one who is pierced. The last thing, the shepherd is slaughtered and the people scatter. Chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. Seven through nine. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord. This could be very confusing. What it's saying, awake, O sword. There's going to be a sword taken against this shepherd. And it says, it's against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord. In other words, the Lord and this one are in cooperation in some sense. This is referring to the same one who has been pierced in chapter 12. The Lord and this one are in cooperation in the path of redemption. It is through this one that the people's sins are forgiven. It is The Lord's, one by the Lord's side. And so this one is struck with the sword. And then the next verse, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is quoted in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 56. When Jesus was struck, all his disciples were scattered. They left. So the question we asked at the beginning, how does God defeat evil? What we'll see is God defeats evil through this servant who comes and who suffers, who bleeds, who dies. I want to read to you a long illustration, and then we'll we'll be finished up. It's by a guy named Edward Shalito. He fought in World War One. He was in the trenches, faced with death many times. And he says this, and he's speaking about how God handles evil. And I think this will be on the screens if I can... Get that up there and you'll follow along. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not, cr- not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering, snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture... And death. In another group a negro boy lowered his collar. What about this? he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer? she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in this world in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, and a thalidomide child. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled, And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had already served his sentence. What does God do with evil? God suffers it himself. God sends his son to suffer it. So that in all that you suffer... There is one who has suffered for you. There is one who has borne your iniquities, who has been struck for your sins, and who has bled so that you might be saved, and so that you might live. What does God do with evil? He conquers it. He conquers it by His own Son. The same author says this, To our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. If you're here and you do not believe, if you are here and you are not living the life of a believer, this is a God who can satisfy you. You cannot satisfy yourself in anything you could seek, but this is a God who has died so that you might live. Will you not submit to him? The last thing that happens in the book of Zechariah as we close is the Lord reigns. You see, that was not the end, not just the death, but in this, the Lord reigns. Chapter 14, verse 9, it says, There is a day. There is a day, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. When it says that the Lord will be one and his name will be one, it means that there will no longer be any competitor for the worship of the Lord. There will be no temptation in your life anymore that competes for worship of God because he will reign and he is and will be the only God. This is why it's so important that we worship God now. Because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether you want to do it now or not, one day you will. One day you will. And it will not be by choice. And so the question that lingers for many of you who have not submitted to the Lord is will you submit to the Lord? He has died for you. He has suffered for you, but He reigns. He lives that you might live. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. I want to invite the deacons to go ahead and to come forward.